All right, do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. We encourage you to have a Bible. Uh, I know, you know, we, we ordinarily would have physical copies that you could track along with me, um, but uh, if you're at home, please just, you know, if you can, get one out or get your device out and follow along that way. We believe that the Word of God is powerful and effective at accomplishing the purposes of God. Well, we're doing a series and we're going through the book of Daniel. We're recognizing the cultural moment that we're all going through, the, the uh, trauma of a pandemic and the social unrest and all of that stuff. And we, we basically just said, hey, look, we want to have a, a playbook. We want to have God's scripture really informing how we're processing all of these different realities. And so Daniel is a great book for that purpose because he's an individual who is going through, you know, some political turmoil, and he was living in unusual circumstances, but he was a believer, and he was, he was living faithfully in this environment that he found himself. And so we're looking at him and his friends and really just kind of allowing them to inform how we're thinking and feeling about the cultural moment that we're going through. So let me pray, and we'll get right to work. Lord, we ask right now that by your power, by your spirit, you would speak to us. We're praying, Lord, that you would use this time to help us know you, we're praying, God, that we as your people, believers in Jesus Christ, that we could reflect you to the watching world, and we could do all of that in a way that is pleasing and admirable. So, Lord, would you use this time, please, right now, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Daniel chapter 5, first we find the audacity of pride in verses 1 to 4, there's a king, and he's having a party. Look at verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. There's a king, and all of a sudden, going from, you know, chapter 4, where there was another king, Nebuchadnezzar, to chapter 5, now there's this new king, and it's, you know, commentators say it's something like 30 years have passed. But here we find this new king, King Belshazzar, and he's throwing a party. He's having this great banquet. He's got a thousand guests there, his nobles, and they're drinking wine together with him. And there's this defiance. There's this kind of swagger about him that you find here in the text that he's trying to show off to his friends. And so he's, um, he, he's throwing this party. He's drinking wine. And he, he even gives orders to bring in some of the sacred items. So let's look at verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So, you know, Daniel and his friends are from Jerusalem, but Nebuchadnezzar, the previous king, he defeated them. Nebuchadnezzar, with his military campaign, goes in there, defeats Jerusalem, and takes things away from there. He takes captives. He takes the king, Jehoiakim. He takes um, some of the royalty. He takes the nobility and he brings them out and takes them to Babylon. And he also grabs some of the items from inside their temple, inside the place of worship that they had. They had, you know, all kinds of the holy items like shovels to deal with the ashes and, and goblets to drink out of and, you know, candle holders and all this stuff. And he takes some of that with him back to Babylon. Well, now Belshazzar, this new king, is saying, I'm so awesome, and we're having such a great party here. Let's go grab some of those items that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. Let's bring them out, and let's drink out of them. So he's showing off his pride, and he's in defiance to, to God himself, and they are, therefore, engaging in idolatry. 
Look at verses three and four. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they are engaging in idolatry. They are showing off. Belshazzar is showing off his might and his ability, and he's prideful in this, in this moment. He's full of hubris. He's trying to show all of these different people how impressive he is, and he's engaging in idolatry. Idolatry is worship. It's worship. It's when we look at something and we elevate it to the status of a god, and we begin to draw some of our significance from it. We, we begin to think this way, I can't imagine life without this. This thing gives me energy. It gives me passion. It gives me the things that I desire most in life. Idolatry really is the worship of something that treats that something as if it were a god. It's a savior. So they're worshiping gods of gold and silver, of iron and bronze and all these different things, but they're engaged in worship here. They're, they're engaged in idolatry. And, and um, really, it isn't the, the issue of those materials. It's what they represent. You've got these different things that they've fashioned to help them think about these things in their culture that are so powerful and, and attractive to them. And so I'm just going to point out three different idols from the text that are also present today. One of the idols that people tend to deal with is this idol of sensuality and pleasure. He's throwing a party and... <clears throat> They're drinking wine, and, and you just kind of get this sense that there's this sensuality about it, as there's all kinds of different people and concubines and wives and all this stuff, but, but there's this worship of sensuality. There's an idol, <clears throat> excuse me, there's an idol of power. There's this um, flexing of, look at how great we are. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how important I am. And you see Belshazzar kind of lifting himself up in front of all these people, and just kind of saying, look at me and look at my greatness. I think that that's an issue even today. But then there's this third idol as well. It's a political idolatry, and it's kind of, it's kind of Belshazzar basically saying, look at how great Babylon is. Look at how great our nation is. Look at how powerful we are. We, we are such a formidable opponent that nobody can do anything about it. And we'll look at that in just a minute, but, but there's this political idolatry <clears throat> And it's something that is very much alive and present today. Chris Wright is the director of the Langham Partnership. He's a pastor and a missiologist. He's in Great Britain, and <clears throat> he's written pretty extensively on this idea. And he notices that in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, a lot of times idolatry is wed to politics and their nationalism. And so you've got places like Egypt and Babylon and Persia and all these different places that are kind of putting forward their might and their greatness, and they're worshiping it. <clears throat> and that's what we find here. But Chris Wright says that this is still very much an issue today. And we see that, obviously, in the political discourse of our day and age, don't we? We see these different camps that have kind of elevated their ideas to the place of significance and importance. And, and there's, a, there's a love and a worship of these political ideals that manifests in, if you don't share this passion with me, you don't deserve to even be a part of our community. And you begin to see this kind of political idolatry at play even today. And so we need to pay attention to that because it is very much alive and well. There's idols of sensuality and idols of power and political idols and all of that stuff is very much 
alive and well. And so we need to be a people who are careful about that, that we are not also engaging in those things. But one of the things that's surprising about this story is that um, their idolatry is happening in a very bizarre context. Um, and there was, a, there was an atheist who wrote about this, and he basically said that sometimes when you recognize how fragile you really are, it provokes your idolatry. And um, here's what's going on. As we get to the very end of the story, we find out that there's an army right outside the city. And, and we find that out because at the end of this story, that very night, they come in. But then you look at history and you go, okay, well, how did that army get in there? Because Babylon was such an impenetrable city. Euphrates ran beside it, so there's this giant river, and then they had these huge walls. And you find out that the Persian, the Medo-Persian army, stopped up the Euphrates River, so it, you know, it became dried out, and then they were able to cross over, and then they dug under the wall. That's a big project, okay? I do projects at my house, and um, I always tell my wife, you can ask her today, how long do projects usually take? I make a promise. I say, you know what? We could probably do this in this amount of time. Then you, you have to add a lot more to it to be anywhere near, near realistic. Can you imagine the amount of time that it would take to stop up a river, to march an army across that riverbed, and then to dig underneath the wall, and then to show up? They're there while this party is happening. That's what I'm thinking. They're, they're out there. They're figuring out how they're going to get inside. And meanwhile, Belshazzar is inside throwing a party, a raging party. And, and he's basically saying, guys, look, we, nobody's going to hurt us. Nobody's going to harm us. Nobody could possibly get in here. But all of that is hubris. All of that is pride. And, and, and all of that is just a, a facade that's about to come down. So they're under siege, and they're about to suffer catastrophic loss. And instead of dealing with the reality at play, they just double down on their idolatry. Now, unfortunately, I feel like that's what many of us are doing today, too. That there's a fragility about the moment with all the things that are happening. And instead of dealing with reality, we just double down on the things that we're worshiping. So several months ago, when all of this started, I used to say, I'm so I'm actually kind of excited about the potential here for revival. That, it, that the church, not just our church, but the church in general, given the pressure of the moment, it might be a, a season where we experience revival because, you know, we're going to cast ourselves on God and we're going to depend on Him and we're going we're gonna to trust in Him in a new way and, and we're going to experience then the revival of God. We're going to become a better church. We're going to become more vibrant. We're going to become more alive. But what I'm seeing now months and months into it is that instead of experiencing revival, I see a lot more idolatry. And it's partly because re revival, one of the precursors to revival is repentance. In order to experience revival, you have to repent. And so if we're not doing that, there's no great confidence that I have that we're going to experience revival. If all of us are kind of saying, no, 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 I, I know what's going on here. I know what's happening in our world, and I'm, I'm committed to that. Instead of saying, God, help us. I don't know what's happening here. I, some of the language of, of repentance would be, I might be wrong. And I don't hear a lot of that in many sectors of the Christian world. And so um, 
you know, I guess what I'm saying is a lot of us are like Belshazzar, doubling down on our commitments, saying we already know. I know what's best. I know what's right. And if people don't agree with me, then, you know, so be it. So there's an audacity of pride in verses 1 to 4. There's the writing on the wall in verses 5 to 9. Um, what happens is you've got this human arrogance on display, and God shows up and crashes the party. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as he watched the hand as it wrote. So there's this hand, and I don't know what it would look like exactly, but a hand with a finger writing on the wall. And it's actually traumatic to him. Look at verse 6, his face turned pale, and he's so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. This, this guy who's kind of saying, look at me, look at how mighty I am. All of a sudden, in the presence of God, he's quaking in fear. He's, he's, he's traumatized by this. And that's, you know, one of the things that can point to the reality of dealing with God. If, if your God is very tame, I'm not sure you're really dealing with God. But when you deal with the God who is, there's something about it that's offsetting, that's kind of traumatic. And he's feeling weak and his knees are knocking, but he wants to know what's going on. So in verse 7, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, in purple and have a gold chain placed around their neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The king is frightened by this experience, but he's saying if there's, if there's a wise person in the kingdom who can read this writing and tell me what it means, then I'll reward that person handsomely. I'll make them the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, the reason why he's probably saying the third highest is because he's almost like a co-ruler in this case, but he's basically saying, I'll give you one of the most important positions in all the land. If you can do this for me, I will reward you handsomely, but they are unable to do that. Look at verses eight and nine. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale, his nobles were baffled. Over and over again in, in Daniel, you see this kind of contrasting reality that there's a wisdom of the world that's inadequate. It, it cannot answer the mysteries of God. There are wise people that are called astrologers and enchanters and magicians and diviners and Chaldeans and all these things, and they keep getting brought out. Come on, guys, come on out and tell us what's going on. And every time they're like, we, we can't really explain what's happening. But then you have this person of God, this man of God with the wisdom of God who's able to discern what God is up to. So in this moment, what we need is the wisdom of God. There's a wisdom in the age, there's a wisdom of the age, but what we desperately need in this moment in this cultural moment that we're going through, is wisdom from God. We need to hear God's voice. We need to understand his ways. And, and, and to do that well, we're going to have to be a people who are committed to listening, to praying, to asking God to speak to us through his word, and, and not just parroting what culture is already saying. That's what a lot of Christians are doing right now. They're simply regurgitating what they're hearing. They're parroting what, they're, what they've heard on their, you know, favorite platforms that they listen to. Chris Wright again, the guy who wrote about political idolatry, he puts it like this, we use the Bible selectively to reinforce our own personal aspirations, social and political views, or delusions. We take the Bible and we want to footnote what we already believe is true. 
So we find proof text to kind of justify our opinions. But what, what we need to be doing is allow, allow God to speak into this moment and to correct us and to change us and to be humble enough to receive a word from him that might be you know, contrary to what we think. But we need that wisdom from God. And whether or not we're willing to admit it, there's a time coming where the wisdom of the age is simply inadequate. There's a moment coming where the, in, the wisdom of the age will have to admit, we don't know what this means. We can't read it. We can't interpret it. We are baffled. There's a moment coming where the smartest people, the brightest people, the, the diviners, the astrologers, the enchanters, the, the scientists, the political leaders, and everyone in our culture, in our day and age, are finally going to have to say, we don't know. But there is a God who speaks. So in verses 10 to 17, the man of God. The queen bursts into the party in verse 10. Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, she came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't be so pale. Easy for her to say, right? But this is uh, apparently an, uh, an older woman, possibly the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. And she comes in and she begins to speak to Belshazzar and she's trying to encourage him. She says, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. There's a man who has proven himself to be able to handle mysteries like this. He's a man who has this giftedness about him. He's a man who has this excellent spirit about him. He's a man that your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, has leaned on before for situations like this. And he is here in your kingdom. He became so influential in the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar made him the chief of the wise people. So verse 12, he did this. Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel to this position because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, to explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he'll tell you what the writing means. Apparently, Daniel has kind of fallen out of favor, and this new king doesn't even know of him, but the queen wisely comes in and says, hey, there is somebody in your kingdom who can help. And if you've been around for the past few weeks, you understand the significance of that. Daniel is a man of God, able to discern the things of God. But the king, he's still skeptical. So verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and he said to him, are you Daniel, one of the ex exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? So he's looking at Daniel now, and he's just saying, you're one of the captives. Yeah, you might have this impressive you know, resume, but you're still one of these individuals that my father took captive and placed under his jurisdiction and in his kingdom. Can you help? Verses 14 to 16. I've heard that the spirit of, gods is, of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it, what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple, you'll have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel, if you're really able to do this, you will be rewarded. But there's writing, and I want to know what is it and what does it mean. And I'll reward you for that, but Daniel says, no thanks. Daniel answered the king, you can keep the gifts for yourself, 
Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. This is the posture of a true believer. We're not looking to serve for our own advantage. We're willing to serve because God makes us able. So Daniel is this man of God, and he really does serve for us as a prototype. He shows us what it's like to be a follower of God in a hostile cultural moment. He's willing to to bless other people. He's willing to serve his natural enemies, you know, the people who are seeking to oppress him and do him harm, and he's willing to bless and serve them. And he's, he's able to do that because he, he, his citizenship is somewhere else, right? His citizenship, he's, he's a, a follower of God and he's living in Babylon, but he recognizes this isn't my home. I belong to another kingdom. Yes, you're my king, you're my majesty, and I, I have to follow you as I live in this moment, but my, my citizenship is somewhere else, Daniel would be able to say. And therefore, he's able to redemptively engage in culture. He's able to love and serve and bless. He's able to serve as our prototype. He shows us what it looks like to be Christians in a hostile age. Now, the church, I think, ought to be following suit. We, we should be the kind of place that, that people say, there is a people in this kingdom that have an excellent spirit about them. There is a people in this kingdom that are gifted by God. And there's something about them that's different. Yes, you've got a whole bunch of experts out there and wise people, but I look at them and I say, they're right there. Those people, those are the kind of people you want around you. They're the kind of people who are going to help you through this. They're going to speak truth into the experience. They're going to be a blessing to you. They're going to serve in incredible ways. They're, they're going to love you well. They, they're going to be the kind of people who are just doing an incredible job. And I want our church to be spoken of in that sort of way. I want people to look at Christians and to just say, I got to have them near me. I don't know what's going on right now, but I just want them near me because there's something about them. Even the, the vibe that they have, even the way that they carry themselves in this moment, they're not anxious, they're not fretting, they're not complaining, they're not murmuring. They're, they're just, they're beautiful. And so we just keep them around because it helps us. And um, unfortunately, I don't know if that can always be said of us. I wonder sometimes if when Christians kind of open their mouths right now, and this is at least my experience, if there's a lot of eye rolling. If Christians aren't that beautiful, sane voice speaking truth and love into the cultural moment. But a lot of times right now, Christians are just kind of boo-hooing and talking about, you know, the glory days that are long since past and wishing we could go back to what it once was. We're, we're kind of like the, the Israelites in, in the desert wilderness going, man, I, I just want to go back. Christians, we should be beautiful. The church should be a beautiful reality, a counter-cultural city of God that people are just magnetized to. Well, we've got the man of God there in verses 10 to 17. Then we've got the judgment of God in verses 18 and following. Your majesty, the Most High, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Nebuchadnezzar had his position of leadership because God gave it to him. Everything that he had was God's doing. But his greatness was, was expansive. Look at this, verse 19. Because of the high position that God gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. 
Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. He was the most powerful person on the planet. He was the leader of this great nation, Babylon, and it is a superpower in the world at this time. But he became proud and he had to learn the lesson the hard way. Look at verse 20. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. We're going to kind of rehash the story from last week, but it's here for us again in the text this week. Nebuchadnezzar was so powerful, but he was very proud. And God took the opportunity to teach him a very, very hard lesson. He was driven away from people. He was given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets, them, sets over them anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar, the former king, was so prideful and so arrogant that he had to learn this very hard lesson. And God humbled him by putting him out for a season. And then he restored him. As we talked about last week, what, what Nebuchadnezzar engaged in is cosmic plagiarism. It's what Tim Keller calls cosmic plagiarism. It's looking at the gifting of God on his life and saying, this is all mine. I did this. I accomplished this. But he had to learn the hard way that God is the most high. He's sovereign over all. And then, here's the problem, Belshazzar, you failed to learn this history lesson. You should know better. You, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You grew up in this kingdom, you heard this story, you maybe even observed it firsthand, but you did not pay attention to this important lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. Instead, you practiced idolatry. Instead, you rebelled against God. You thumbed your nose against the creator of all. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles drank from them. You and your wives and your concubines drank wine from these goblets. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life in all your ways. There is a real God he is the God of all, he's sovereign, he reigns supreme, and you did not acknowledge him, but instead you mocked him, you blasphemed him. You took his items and you treated them with contempt. You tried to show off your might and your power, but now God is going to show you exactly what is entailed for you. The judgment of God, therefore, is coming upon you. Verses 24 and following. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription, and this is the inscription that was written. written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. God has spoken. It's a word of judgment, and here's what it means. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You've been king, but all of the kings, as we've learned all the way through the book of Daniel, they, God sets them up, and he deposes them, and he does that on his timeline. And here we find out, Mene, God has numbered your reign, and it is done. Your days are being brought to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. God has looked at you and he's evaluated you and he's passing judgment on you and he's finding you to be insufficient in this moment. You've been placed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
So God speaks, he writes on the wall, Daniel interprets that language, that strange language, and we find out that God is speaking this word of judgment over Belshazzar. Well, Daniel is still rewarded at Belshazzar's command. Daniel was, was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But look what happens to Belshazzar. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Just like that. Just like that. His pride is all of a sudden reduced to dust. He thought he was so great earlier in that day, showing off to all of his friends, and then at the end of the day, he's overtaken by Darius the Mede. And there's a new sheriff in town, if you will. So you've got this issue of pride. And, and so as we look at the story then, one of the main issues that we're facing is the human condition. One of the tendencies that we have is that we want to make it about us. We want to make everything about us. And um, I, I wish that it worked a little bit different, but this week as I was praying and reflecting on this, I, I began to realize while I would like to write myself into the story as Daniel, I actually find myself in the story as Belshazzar. And I'm going to illustrate this for you so you can kind of begin to kind of sense and feel what this looks like at the street level. So um, several weeks ago, we were going through a different series, and I talked to some of the leaders here, and I said, I think it'd be in our best interest to change the preaching plan uh, for the next little stretch. I mean, we're dealing with unique challenges at our site of meeting at the tree farm and all these different mitigation things, and I think we, we need to be able to speak specifically into what we're going through. And so we came up with the idea of going through the book of Daniel, and so I ran it up the flagpole asking, you know, different leaders uh, from the Beloit campus and senior leadership, is it okay if we do this? I wanted to get everything kind of checked off and approved and all of that, and, and uh, it, it just went great. Everyone said, yeah, that's a wonderful idea, please do that. And so then I began to think to myself, this series that we're going to go through at our site, it's going to be super helpful. This is going to be so good. I don't know if you can begin to sense where this is going, but I began to think about, you know, this preaching task of mine, and I thought, man, this is going to be wonderful. So many people are going to be helped by it. When I was younger, I used to hear preachers, um, when we'd go to camps and different things, and preachers would stand up like this, and they'd be, they'd be talking about just the brevity of life, and you're not guaranteed another day, and they'd say things like this, I might not leave this podium today. I might fall down dead right here. And then, you know, as a uh, young guy, I was like, oh, wow, that'd be crazy, right? And then they'd always say this. They'd always say, but man, wouldn't that be awesome? I'd be preaching one moment in the presence of God the next. And uh, it sounds great, you know, like I'd get extra, you know, brownie points because I'm preaching, and then I'm right in front of God. But then I became a preacher, and I began to realize, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Preaching is one of the things that I do on a regular basis that is most fraught with pride. W what do I do every week? I throw a party. I invite you all to come, and I want you to say how great I am, right? That's what preaching is sometimes. It's like, hey, guys, come on out. Let's do this big old party, and, and I'll do something, and you guys will all be like, oh, yeah, that was wonderful. That was, you're, thank you. Thank you, pastor. You're doing such a great job. So I'm like Belshazzar, and I'm the one who's full of pride, and oftentimes I'll even get up here, and I'll, and I'll just, it'll be an, a manifestation of my pride. But God is able to go, hey, dude, I'm going to cut you down to size here. 
So I'm doing the series, and <clears throat> I don't remember which week it was, but I'm up here preaching, and I'm like, this, this sermon is so boring, I'm about to fall asleep. And I'm up here preaching, but I'm thinking to myself, man, as great as I imagine this being, all of a sudden I'm realizing, okay, I'm trying to make it about my glory. And I'm not trying to denigrate what God has been doing. Many of you have commented on how helpful this truly has been, but that's on account of his spirit's work in you and not on account of my gifting. And so one of the things we have to recognize is that when we read this story, God is trying to confront our pride. He's trying to look at us and say, what are the things that you try to make it all about you? You try to, you try to put your place, your, yourself in the place of God. You try to elevate yourself. And, you know, we read this story and we tend to dislike Belshazzar. He's the, he's the easy villain to identify. But C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he pointed out that one of the reasons why we dislike pride in others is because we see it in ourselves. And he makes that point very clear in his book, but he says we tend to dislike others because we're actually disliking what's present in ourselves. And so we are prideful people, and God is a gracious God, and we need Daniel chapter 5 to help us. So Daniel 5 is a gospel text Brian Chappell puts it like this, this message of Daniel chapter 5, it follows the truths of the gospel that have unfolded in the previous chapters. God's faithful care for his people, his continuing provision for his people, his abiding presence among his people, and his willingness to deal graciously with those who humble themselves and repent. God is communicating to us the gospel of Jesus Christ through Daniel chapter 5. It tells us about sin. Sin is defiance of God. It's, it's thumbing our nose at God and saying, we, we don't really care about you. We don't really care about you or your ways. We're, we want it our way. Now, on account of that, there's wrath and judgment. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's the appropriate punishment for cosmic treason. And that very night, the immediacy of judgment comes true. This very night, Belshazzar, your life is demanded from you. It tells us that we have a sin issue. That's the human condition that we're all facing. And if we don't resolve it, there's a wrath and judgment issue. But God is a gracious and merciful God. There is a man who can help. Verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. There's a man who can do something about this issue that you're facing. Now that language, it shows up multiple times in the scriptures. It's not just about Daniel. It's in other places, it's really about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. While Philip was under the tree, his brother came and said, Philip, come and see this man. And he invites him to observe the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and they come to the conclusion that he is the Messiah or the woman at the well. There's a woman, a Samaritan woman. She's there. She's interacting with Jesus of Nazareth, and he speaks to her, and that is such a life-changing moment for her that she goes away, and she goes to her community in John 4, 29, and she says, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? We have a sin issue, and there's a judgment coming, but God has sent a man, Jesus Christ, to deal with sin and to exhaust the wrath of God and to offer us forgiveness and hope it's the good news of the gospel that God loved us enough to send his son. That Jesus is the image of God. 
He's the Savior. He is the one who is able to save. That writing on the wall, the, the finger of God, it shows up multiple times in the Bible. In the first case, it shows up in the plagues of Egypt. The, the magicians there were looking at the work of God, and they, they were trying to replicate it, and they could do a couple different stunts and show off their power and their might, but there came a time in Exodus 8, 19, where they said, this, we can't do this. This is the finger of God. In Psalm 19, it talks about the heavens being the handiwork of God, the work of God's hands. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, it talks about God giving his law, and it's inscribed by the finger of God. But then Jesus shows up, and he's doing his ministry, and people are questioning him, what sort of authority do you have? And he does some stuff, and it provokes some conflict, but he says, look, if I'm doing this by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. Friends, that's what's happening. God has sent his son, and the finger of God is present among us. Jesus Christ is doing the work of God on our behalf. Yes, we have a pride issue, but God has dealt with it exhaustively at the cross. Jesus came. He lived perfectly. He died in our place. He took the curse and the punishment and the penalty for sin, and he gifts his, his, his perfect righteousness to us. We can receive that by faith and be saved. So let me pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, you would help us to believe the gospel. We thank you that you are a gracious and loving God who sent your son. And we thank you for the way that you're able to change us then from the inside out, that you're able to reveal pride in us and humble us and teach us that hard lesson. But I pray that everyone who can hear my voice this morning, that we would bend our knee, that we would surrender our lives, that we would trust in Jesus Christ for his salvation. And we pray in his name. Amen and amen.